Skidmore, Missouri, a tiny town in Nottoway County. In 2010, its population topped out at 284 people. There are larger graduating classes than people living inside of Skidmore, but those there know the scars left on its tiny reputation. Some know Skidmore for its more than a century-old pumpkin show that has grown from a one-day event to a four-day festival. Or it's Freedom Fest, but those who know their town well support events like these with hopes that the past won't repeat itself. In 1930, 20-year-old Velma Coulter, a school teacher at Garrett School, was raped and beaten to death at a little white country schoolhouse on December 16th. Before Christmas, Raymond Gunn was behind bars and had confessed to the killing of the young teacher. The people of Skidmore had other plans. On the day that Gunn was brought back to Nottoway County Jail for his arraignment, a large group of citizens overtook Sheriff English and took custody of Gunn. The mob of 800 to 3,000, depending on the storyteller, marched Gunn to where Velma Coulter died. Their men wrapped a rope around Gunn's neck, dragged him up the rungs of a ladder to the roof of the old schoolhouse. Gunn was chained to the roof while the men poured gas siphoned from cars in the area, and Gunn was hung and burned alive under the justice of a vigilante group. Years later, in the summer of 1981, Ken Rex McElroy would meet the same fate after nearly 30 years of being the town bully and accused of assault, child molestation, statutory rape, arson, animal cruelty, hog and cattle wrestling, and burglary. After meeting with Sheriff Estes to discuss the best way to protect themselves from McElroy, who beat 21 different felony charges, were unhappy with the advice from the sheriff. Those people left the Legion Hall, made their way down to D&G Tavern, where McElroy and his wife Trina and children were at. When he climbed into his truck, someone or someones shot him right there in the driver's seat of his pickup. He was hit twice, once by a centerfire rifle and once by a 22 rifle. 46 witnesses saw what happened that day but only trina could identify the gunman and she was an unreliable witness due to her torrid past with mcelroy the da never pursued charges and trina settled her wrongful death lawsuit for measly seventeen thousand six hundred no one has ever admitted guilt to this crime in the spring of 1994, Bill Taylor was clutched in the grasp of his failing marriage, but rather than divorce his wife, Debbie, he concocted a plan that seems like it was written from the pages of any crime writer. Bill killed their cat, then laid the animal in front of the shed doors, the shed where the combine was parked. As Debbie got down to look at the dead animal, Bill climbed behind the wheel and put the machinery into drive. Debbie died from her injuries and Bill was hospitalized for his after he was thrown from the heavy equipment. Bill was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life behind bars without the possibility of parole. December 16, 2004, 74 years after the death of Velma Coulter, the body of Bobby Jo Stennett was discovered in her tiny two-bedroom home she shared with her husband Zeb on West Elm Street. Tragedy had struck the town once again.
Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we continue in our look at the case that shocked the world with its headlines. Once again, the tiny town of Skidmore, Missouri made headlines for the murder of a young mother-to-be and the missing child ripped from her body. Bobby Jo Stinnett was more than the pretty picture on the front pages of newspapers everywhere. She was a woman who loved what she did. She was dedicated and driven to make her rat terrier breeding business successful. And she and her high school sweetheart Zeb were growing their family. Or so they thought. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of murder and adult language. The listener's discretion is advised. If you feel like any of this would be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, my true crime nerds. I want to thank you all for being patient and letting me get on track after our big hub fub a couple weeks ago. We have just a little bit of housekeeping to get to before we get started tonight on today's episode. As many of you notice, advertisements are slowly being added into the episodes as we grow. It's been a long year and I know you would all prefer some ad-free listening, but be on the lookout. It's coming back this Christmas. Just keep an eye on social media for that one. If you're tuning in on YouTube, make sure to check out the community section of the channel. There you will find the updates and breaking news that is shared on social media. Be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you are listening on so that you never miss an episode. Finally, thank you to every single one of you out there leaving reviews and recommendations for the show. We are growing rapidly with new listeners tuning in every single day. Thank you for the support and love as I work to make this dream a reality. We will be back with some true crime nerd love shout outs and episodes to come. But right now, I just want to spread the love to all of you out there listening right now. Thank you for tuning in and your honest to goodness feedback. I am overwhelmed with everybody and So very thankful. Now, to what you all came here for, the true crime. So last week, I introduced you all to Lisa Marie Montgomery and the hard start to life that she had. It can make looking at this case a little clearer than just the crime itself. 
Nothing justifies what Lisa did. Let's make that clear right up front. But for years, we've been looking at the psychology of those who commit crimes like fetal abduction in hopes to get a clear picture as to why they commit the crimes that they do and in the manner that they do them in. Tonight, let me introduce you to the beautiful Bobby Jo Sennett. She was the victim of Lisa Marie. Bobby Joe came into this world on December 4th, 1981. That date seems familiar to those who have an idea of the history of Skidmore. In the trailer, I introduced you to the tiny town of Skidmore and the scars that haunt it. It seems as though Skidmore is on a steady decline in population over the last few decades. People thought small town living would be quiet and everyone would know everyone. But what you learn living in a small town is you get to know everyone and their secrets. Most people want to protect those secrets because they paint a different light to the decisions they've made in the past. But with Bobby Joe, you don't get that with her story. You guys know me. I will fill you in on the victim and who they are and not just who people remember them being. But with Bobby Joe, there's very little for me to share that would sway your view in any way of what kind of person she was. Every once in a while, we run into genuine, great, and loving people. And this Bobby Joe is one of them. Becky Harper, she's Bobby Joe's mother. She met Buck Potter, and the two were married May 12, 1978. At the time, Becky's best friend had kind of threatened to kidnap her on her wedding day and take her away from Buck and keep her all to herself, to the point that Minnie sat in the church waiting to see if Becky would even show. She did, and the two eventually said, I love you, and I do, in front of family and friends. I don't know if there was some glaring insight from Becky's best friend, but it would prove that maybe if she had kidnapped her and taken her away from Buck, things could have turned out different. Buck was not the man that Becky thought he was going to be. He seemed perpetually stuck at being unresponsible, leaving it all up to Becky to work and to take care of them both. In late 1979, Becky became pregnant with the couple's first child. Unfortunately, she would suffer a miscarriage following that. In early 1981, Becky became pregnant again, this time with a little girl that she would name Bobby Jo. She was terrified the entire pregnancy, but when it became apparent that she was going to carry her daughter to full term, only did, then did she let her guard down and allow her best friend to throw her a baby shower and to be happy and hopeful about this pregnancy. Now, Ken McElroy, he died in the streets of Skidmore in July, just before Bobby Joe was born. On December 4th, 1981, Bobby Joe was welcomed into the world. The little girl was a dark-haired, dark-eyed beauty. She was unfortunately born with a cleft palate, which is not to be confused with a cleft lip, which for a majority of cases where a child is born with a cleft 
palate, typically we see the cleft lip as well. However, Bobby Joe did not have that defect. It was simply her palate. This was a deformity that you could not outwardly see in Bobby Joe. There's no scars along her mouth like you see with cleft lip and cleft palate repair. She literally, the roof of her mouth just never connected to one another. This made it difficult for a lot of things in Bobby Joe's life at a young age. She had a hard time eating. This would either cause her to swallow and then the formula or the breast milk or whatever would come back out her nose or she would swallow a bunch of air as she was eating, which we all know for an infant is not a good thing. Makes them extremely unhappy and they cry quite a bit due to tummy pain and not being able to move that gas, move that air bubble south or north. You know what I'm saying? When she was two, Becky and Buck finally decided it was time that she undergo surgery to correct the palate uh, deformity and alleviate some of the difficulties that she was having with eating. This genetic condition also made it really hard for Bobby Joe when it came to her and developing her speech. Chronic ear infections would also play a role as a result of the cleft palate and as a result would affect her speech development. Bobby Joe had to go under this knife one more time for surgery to put tubes into her ears to allow them to drain properly and aid in the reduction of ear infections that she was having, which is also a risk for those born with cleft palates or cleft lips. Over the years, Bobby Joe would be subjected to bullying even more because of the difference in speech compared to others. And that seems to be a huge thing right about now. Well, I say right about now, it's really not. But we're seeing a lot more acceptance into different speech uh, issues. And we are, we have more services available to help those who do have a speech problem. However, when Bobby Joe was growing up, things were limited and kids were pretty mean. Buck wasn't much of a man, and he ended up taking off to Texas, not liking the whole I've got a family life kind of thing. Either it was not what he expected it to be, or chalked it up to the fact that he just didn't like that level of responsibility. So Becky and Bobby Joe stayed behind, and Buck left. But eventually, Becky would load up Bobby Joe and join her husband in Texas. The separation was short, but so was their reunion. It wouldn't be long before Becky returned to Skidmore with Bobby Joe and took on the life of being a single parent. The couple's divorce was finalized in 1985. In 1994, Becky had found herself in another marriage to a loving man, and she welcomed Bobby Joe's half-brother. At this point, Bobby is 13, and between going through puberty and the issues that she's had with speech over the years, things were a little tough for her up until this point. But as she entered into high school in Grand Missouri, things changed for Bobby. As a child, she was shy and insecure about her speech. She was just an all-around quiet child. 
But when she got to high school, Bobby shed that part of her and rose quickly in popularity. She joined 4-H. She became a cheerleader. She worked on the school newspaper. And with all of that, she still managed to maintain her role as an honor student. One thing that Bobby Joe had passion for was barrel racing. The connection that she would have to develop between herself and the horse was a bond that Bobby craved and absolutely adored. In this whole trusting the horse to circle the barrels as tightly as possible without knocking one over, without rolling, without bucking, took thrill to a whole new level for Bobby Joe. This just goes to show her love for animals and, and how that plays out for her and leads ultimately to her dream to open Happy Haven Farms. We'll get into that in here in a little bit. Bobby Joe flourished into the woman we all got to get a glimpse of after the horrible way she had left this earth. She found love in a person that she had known for much of her life. Zeb and Bobby grew up in the same neighborhood. They attended the same schools together. And now in high school, the two found love with one another. When Zeb graduated from high school, he almost immediately went to work for the Kawasaki plant, which was Nottoway County's largest employer at the time. In 2000, Bobby Joe donned the cap gown, and she walked across the stage to accept her high school diploma. Peggy was incredibly proud of her daughter and all that she had managed to accomplish in the short 18 years already. In 2001, Bobby accepted a position at Earl May Feed. Most of the time, she was just a part-time worker. But when they had a busy season, whether it be hunting or, or the summer, whatever, Bobby Joe would pick up some more hours and almost to the point that she would could be considered full-time. She did this until her added help was no longer needed and then her hours would recede back to just part-time. Her boss remembers her as what he called a, quote, dream employee. She never had to have her hand held to do things. She did what she knew she needed to get done and there was no questioning it. She picked up shifts when they needed her to. When other employees had an emergency, Bobby Joe was quick to fill in their position. She was just an all-around great person. But in this part-time job, Bobby was drawn to the pet corner of the store. And her love for animals was never ending. And it just continued to grow through her time at Earl May Feed. Doing this position, it allowed not only for her to love on the animals, but to learn and on how to care for the small animals and just what kind of responsibilities went into taking care of everything. She eventually worked her way to a point where she became in charge of ordering all of the small animals for the feed store. Bunnies, guinea pigs, gerbils, rats, mice, finches, and more. She developed her dream to become a breeder of rat terriers, one of her favorite breeds of dog, and she wanted it to eventually become her career, her business. She learned as much as she could when caring for the small pets at the feed store, but her knowledge of rat terriers far exceeded anything she knew in order to do her job 
well. Bobby Joe's first rat terrier was seven-year-old Tipsy. She was a white and brindled piebald female mini. And she would deliver the very first litter in Bobby Joe's breeding business in January of 2002. From this litter, Bobby Joe found her second rat terrier, Twister. He was a white and red brindle who loved chasing squirrels and getting love from Bobby Joe. He was, all rat terriers are a little on the hyper side if you've ever kind of been around any kind of terrier at all. They're all hyper. They're all, let's go, 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 go until we crash. So for her to get someone like Twister who had that level of energy but also had the brains that he did and was so easy to train, this made him have these desirable genetics, which when you're breeding like Bobby Joe was starting off to, she had to pick out these desirable traits. What are most people looking for when they get a rat terrier? They're looking for some a dog that's smart, trainable, has that energy without being overly energized and just annoying. Bobby Joe could look at these these pups as they came out and she could pick, you know, which ones had that desirable trait that she really wanted her business to be known for. And she eventually Bobby Joe got really good at it. And at this point, she there's this online world developing um, with breeders, and Bobby Joe is just praising Tipsy. She's praising Twister, and she couldn't give out enough information about these two. They were intelligent. They were no trouble, and this was exactly what she wanted to have the perfect combination and just keep going from there. And those inside of the breeding world were very acceptant of Bobby Joe and really quickly learned how great she was about picking out these genetic desirables. Tipsy would deliver her second litter in March of 2003. And from this litter, Bobby Joe fell for a little white and brindle female she would name Belle, which became another female that would she would later breed. Bobby was doing so well on selecting pups and rounding out her breeding. And this color, this brindle, this piebald, this speckling color is basically what it turns out to be. It's not a desirable trait within rat terriers, but Bobby Joe wanted to make it one. She thought if she could get that coloring and get the intelligence and these other traits that were just, she could create this perfect little breed that she would specialize in. And this was great because a lot of people, even though registries weren't some registries, there are some registries that when you go to register your full-blooded whatever, if it has a certain coloring, they may not recognize that as being full-blooded and they may not certify that your animal is a full-blood anything. But if you are a person who loves dogs, it's really hard not to look at a dog and be like, mm, uh, well, 
you are the kind of breed that I like, but your coloring is just off for me and I don't really like it. No, I mean, there, and we will pick the cuter ones, the ones that we are more attracted to, but that doesn't mean that they're any, they are any less of what breed they're supposed to be. And that's the thing with the world that Bobby Joe kind of got wrapped up in is they really wanted to take away that selective, well, we recognize a white one, but that one has some brindle coloring, so we're not going to recognize that one. They wanted to take that away and just create a more open uh, registry. And Bobby Joe, she was the forefront in all of that. The other thing that happened with Bobby Joe and her breeding business is she wanted her animals to go to the best homes possible because Bobby Joe had made sure that her litters had the best attribute she knew she was she was creating a well-rounded dog but she wanted them to be a great animal and so when it came time to taking on one of her animals she had a very lengthy application. I think I read somewhere it was like two pages long. And there was a lot of, you know, do you own your home? Do you rent your home? Kind of things. Because being a renter, you're limited to breeds. You may be completely and totally told no on your animal being with you in a rental property due to the, you know, past experience with damage and stuff like that. So Bobby Joe wanted to know everything. Had you euthanized a dog? Why did you have to put the dog down? This kind of, you know, I want to know everything and how you are as far as it comes to your relationship with animals. This just continued to grow the respect and, and reputation that Bobby Joe had in her breeding world. People would eventually start turning to her for advice in their breeding efforts genetic issues that may be involved with some of the rat terriers. That's a huge thing. And Bobby Joe was able to kind of get a understanding of the animal. And she could tell you that that one was going to pass along some of the desirables, or if there was a possibility that one of the undesirable traits would pass along and how that could affect their breeding going forth with that animal in particular. All of this and all of the online world of breeding, she would eventually meet Lisa Marie. Of course, Lisa Marie would not become the only person that Bobby Joe would come to know in the world of breeding. She grew really close with another breeder out in North Carolina. And even though the only interaction these two ever had was either through the internet or by phone, they became very close. And if you was to talk to the breeder out in North Carolina and what her mental picture was of Bobby Joe prior to learning too much more, she would say that Bobby Joe was in her mid-50s. She was sweet. She was caring. She obviously had really good motherly instincts. And there was a very comforting tone in the way she spoke. They were quite surprised when they did learn that Bobby Joe was far younger than they had pictured. In April of 2003, Bobby Joe had to resign from her position at Earl May Feed. She needed a higher paying job and the Kawasaki plant was offering her the pay she needed in order to continue to live the way she was as far as her financial 
needs came to be because she's breeding and all of that's coming out of her own pocket. She's not making huge profits off of that just yet. And she's starting to start a life with Zeb. Later in April of 2003, Bobby Joe and Zeb promised to love one another in front of their family and friends inside of an old stone sanctuary of the Skidmore Christian Church. There in front of everyone, the high school sweethearts promised till death do they part. What neither of them realized was that death would come sooner to the couple rather than later. Zeb and Bobby rented a small two-bedroom home on West Elm, and this became their very first home. It was a rental, but they had plans. They were going to buy their own house. They were going to create this family, and everything was just going to be happy, happy, happy. The young couple was just getting started, and Bobby Joe was starting to see a little bit of green in the profits come from her breeding. She decided she was going to tuck every bit of that away into a fund to help them purchase their dream home someday, hopefully soon. The dog show world became part of life for the newlywed couple, Bobby and Zeb. Sometimes Zeb was able to travel with her to some of these dog shows, and other times she was grateful to be able to share a room with one of the other breeders that she had become close with over their time showing the terriers. In April, on April 3rd of 2004, Lisa Marie emailed Bobby Joe. Quote, it has been a busy week here with five active pups, two of which my daughter is working with on crate training, litter box training, and stacking on her table. Her room is more like our kennel room here. The kids are talking about switching bedrooms to give Kayla and the pups their room, even if it means someone has to share a bedroom. We are still planning on making the Abilene, Kansas show on the 17th with at least two of the pups depending on how well training goes. Kayla is excited about this as this will be her first show. Bobby would write her back, quote, Lisa, I will be at the show. Cannot wait to meet you. We will be bringing Diamond down for the standard variety puppy class, end quote. One month later, Bobby Joe found out she was pregnant with her and Zeb's very first child. When she met with Lisa Marie at the dog show in Abilene, Lisa Marie was dressed in her famous maternity clothing, once again telling people she was pregnant, this time with twins. Following this show, Lisa and Bobby grew kind of close through their messaging and phone calls. However, even though the two were like a couple hours apart, they never met again outside of their meeting at this one dog show. They would speak more than about breeding. They eventually started sharing about their personal lives through their pregnancies and the hopes that they had for the children they are currently carrying. And we all know Lisa wasn't truly carrying a child, nor was it twins, but she had developed this fake world she was living in and it was one that she hadn't had the tubal ligation and she you know was able to provide Kevin with their own children and the more the internet gave her a a place to 
live through that imagination, the less people got to know the real Lisa. So Bobby just assumed, you know, she's talking to a, a fellow breeder who's also pregnant. And she was, how comforting was it to have a friend who was interested in all the same things and you were going to have children around the same time? All of that just makes you become closer to that person. But you know how Lisa can be. During this time in one of their chat rooms, another breeder commented on the fact that she had just found out she was newly pregnant with twins. Well, Lisa was quick to jump into the direct messages to her and tell her that she was also pregnant with twins, but I have you beat as my twins are due before hers. Now, stop right here and take that in, okay? Why am I stopping here? It seems like early on, Lisa realized that if she wasn't going to get custody of her half-brother's kid, if she, you know, all of her efforts in order to obtain a child more, I don't want to say in a more legal way, because she was extorting her ex-husband for his current wife's inheritance in hopes that she could buy a child, which isn't legal in any way. Um, but we are seeing this, like she's almost picking people out. Okay. I want twins. If I say I'm pregnant with twins, maybe somebody else will pop up and all of a sudden they'll be pregnant and maybe I have some way of taking their children. I'm not sure if the idea of murder had fully developed at this point, but we're seeing Lisa starting to pick out women based off of them being pregnant and whether or not they're carrying one or two children. It's obvious she really wanted twins. But when this breeder messaged and, and told people that she had lost her twins, Lisa Marie was gone out of her DMs. The other thing that was really strange about their exchange is that after she kind of was snidey in her remark of, you know, I've got you beat. My, my kids are due before years kind of thing, which what kind of competition is that? Great. You're going to be a mom before me. You know, maybe I'll get to learn some things through your trial and errors. So after all of that snidiness, Lisa did eventually email this lady back and was like, well, you know what? I'm going to make some baby blankets for your twins as well. But as soon as she found out that mother had lost her twins in a miscarriage, poof, Lisa Marie was gone. She wasn't talking to this lady no more. There was no interaction between them as far as breeding was concerned. Nothing happened with that person after she lost her babies. And that's why I was like, hey, let's stop and look at this moment real quick. Because you can almost put your finger on this pinpoint this time in Lisa's history and go, this may be where there was a conception to kidnap starting to develop, right? I don't know if murder was there, but kidnapping was definitely there at this point. She's latching on to women who have a, a similar story to hers and maybe just maybe she could pass the kids off as her own and hold on to a husband she feels like is slipping away but I think in reality he you know he was very happy with the blended family they had created coming together 
In May of 2004, Bobby Joe fell in love with a beautiful white and blue fawn blanket back male that was born February of that year. She contacted the owner and the two spoke about what's called joint ownership. And this little pup's name was Fonzie. Super cute name. Have to tell you a little bit because I love, I'm, I'm an old soul and Happy Days was a good show. I looked forward to it coming on at Nick at night. And so when I saw that his name was Fonzie, I was like, oh, how cute. But the other thing I'm really kind of was like, I got to go down this realm of co-ownership of an animal, right? Weird. So the way that that worked out is a lot of times co-ownership happens with males. And it's because they have desirable traits you want to breed into your female who has the desirable traits that you've already selected. So in doing so, it allows these two people to have more puppies with the right traits without overworking their female dogs, okay? So the owner of Fonzie and Bobby came to an agreement the two would share time with Fonzie. Super weird, just FYI, because I was like, I wouldn't share my little Lexi fat roll with no one. But, you know, I don't breed either, so maybe that's what it is. These two would meet on the 16th of May in 2004 in Norman, Oklahoma at a dog show. And it's at that point they kind of traded custody of Fonzie and Bobby got to take him over. Well, Fonzie's original owner, she or he, because the name is nowhere documented. I just know of the story, so... The owner went and checked into their room and then made their way back to the room that Bobby Joe had been checked into. And when they walked into the room, to their surprise, there's Bobby Joe. She's got Fonzie. She's doing Fonzie's nails. He's asleep on his back with his paws in the air. And I kid you not, how cute is that? My dog sleeps like that, but she's too fat to sleep on her belly. That's why she sleeps like that. It's not so I can trim her nails. But if any of you have ever tried to trim your dog's nails, oh my gosh, that's a nightmare. So when I read that this dog was sleeping as Bobby Joe's just filing and clipping away, I was like, this shows who she was as a person because animals are very good at trusting the right human, right? Like you've seen somebody where dogs are just constantly like aggressive towards, they don't want to be around. And we've seen that person that she makes, or they make a friend out of every animal they ever come across. Well, this is Bobby Joe. And this story, the reason I included it, because it showed you who she was as far as her character was. For a dog to be just now being introduced to Bobby Joe and allowing her to do the nails while he's passed smooth out, it just shows you how caring she really was. Um, and like I said in the intro of the show, I, I, you know, I don't sugarcoat shit for you guys at all. I really don't. I'm going to give you the black and white and gray. I'm going to give it to you all. I don't want to know who the person was based off of memories that everybody has. I want to know who they really are. We all make crappy mistakes, okay? We're not always in the best mood. We all have our days. But Bobby Joe, when I'm digging through her history, she is just genuinely somebody I think everybody wanted to be around. And 
she had equipped herself with this level of knowledge that even breeders were turning to her for questions and dogs were just super comfortable, super relaxed, and they could, you know, they didn't have to be on guard in her presence. This shows you how truly genuine she was. That's why I, I selected this story in particular to share with y'all about her because I wanted you to see the just who she really was. And animals are great at showing you who somebody is. At this point, Bobby Joe's breeding business is starting to take off. Tipsy, her very first rat terrier, had its third and final litter. She would be retired from breeding past this point. Now, a lot of people, once their female is done breeding, they will sell her off. And that's after they fix her. Because if you make a dog go through too many litters, it really just wreaks havoc on the dog and their the quality of life following is just not really good. So a lot of breeders, when they do retire their female, they will fix her. And then some will go to the stint of giving her to a good loving home where it's a family looking for an already trained older dog and not a puppy. A lot of people have this urge to have puppies because they're cute and squishy and they're just all around got cute puppy breath and stuff. Some people are very satisfied with adopting older dogs. So for a lot of people, once their dog's done having litters, they, they see no more use for them. But with Bobby Joe, one of the big things in her business was we breed our animals to be in-home pets first. And then we breed them to have these characteristics and for you to be able to go and do dog shows and stuff like that. So if you're wanting them to be just strictly on the breeding side, they have some great qualities, but first and foremost, they're, they're brought up in a home where they're going to be a pet who is loved and cared for first. So when Tipsy was done, she was fixed, but Bobby Joe was not about to give away her very, very, very first baby. She was going to hold on to her tight. Well, now she has Belle, and Belle is scheduled to have her first litter. So the way these things, I'm learning all kinds of things about breeding, FYI, and I, I've learned that I don't, I don't want to do it because you have to track their cycles, and then you have to schedule when they could possibly be in heat, when would be the best time to find the stud and have the stud and your female together to create the highest probability that you're going to have a litter. Well, Belle is going, she's going into her second because that's another thing I learned. You can't, you can breed them part before they have their first in heat, but it's best to wait until they're into their, to breed at their second one. Let them go through the first one and kind of get an idea of who they are and how they handle things like that. So Belle's scheduled to have her first litter and Tipsy's had her third and final litter so Bobby Joe is really starting to plan big because Fonzie is going to be the stud in Belle's litter. Things were just like she had all of her little pieces to make her dream a reality in place and they were just sliding together perfectly. She even had multiple people on waiting lists for three different scheduled litters like 
this is how sought after she was. All of this business was going on with all of her different letters and their schedules and all of that. Plus, she now has the excitement of being pregnant with her and Zeb's first. They found out their child was due January 19th, 2005. We are going to hold on to this because as Bobby Joe and Lisa continue to share, we can see where that attraction is and how in Lisa's story, things shifted to align with Bobby Joe and her pregnancy. However, it wasn't up to the same exact due date. Lisa had learned that four weeks, 30 days, she could take the baby at that many days if she could get him to go into early labor. And that way, not everything lined up perfect. You see what I'm saying? Like, Lisa had her own um, shortcomings. She really did. But don't forget, she was highly intelligent. And planning goes into that. Now, when I say she's highly intelligent, that comes to academic knowledge. When it comes to actual common sense, that's where we see the big, big chunk missing from Lisa. And we can argue you know, her defense later. So, I guess I'm making a case. We know how this is going to come out, but are we making a case? We have kidnapping. That is, first and foremost, she's ready to commit that crime. Okay, so now she's learning that if she lines her stories up a certain way, things don't overlap perfectly and it's least likely that you're going to think it's her, okay? So there's that. Now we're to the point of how she's going to obtain that child before their actual due date. And I think this is where murder is going to start to come into play, just simply because there's no guaranteed way to make sure the child is born early than through a cesarean. Well, in order to do a cesarean, you're going to have to subdue the mom which means killing because nobody is going to not fight to the death to protect their child. So logically, the only way she can think of is through murder. So here we are. Lisa's mentality in her choices are starting to make pattern <coughs> following Bobby Joe and her life and how things are going for them. So we have a baby due January 19th of 2005. Zeb and Bobby are ecstatic. They're already picking out baby names. Zebediah if it's a boy and Victoria Joe if it's a girl. November of 2004, Bobby Joe learned that she was carrying her and Zeb's daughter and it would she would be named Victoria Joe. Bobby started registering for her daughter's baby shower. She went and picked out things that she wanted from the local Walmart and put it all on a registry for the baby shower. In early of October, we're going to go back, we're going to jump back just a little bit here in the timeline. In early October, Lisa announced to their breeding group that she had lost one of the twins, but the other twin doctors managed to save. 
So we're going to go back into this whole planning thing. She's seeing, you know, that her kidnapping Bobby Joe's baby is probably her best chance at having a child. And I use air quotes because this is not going to be her child, but she is going to sell the shit out of it to anybody and everybody that listens that this is her miracle baby between her and Kevin. So in October, she's announced that she's lost one of her babies, but she still has one. So that when she shows up here in about a month and a half, two months with a child, it'll follow along in the story. Well, here we are. Bobby Joe is eight months pregnant. And she shows up to a dog show in mid-November. And you can see a lot of these pictures online. Not a lot. There's a few of them online of Bobby Joe at the dog show. She was super uncomfortable with being pregnant like every woman is at eight months. And But she had a very successful show because Diamond won Reserve. But the real spotlight of it all was Fonzie. This was his very first show. Bobby Joe was just now training him on all the particulars when it comes to showing off a dog. And the only reason she really took him to this show was to get him used to the idea of being in the ring and being instructed to do different things. But he scored so well in every event in his very first event, he showed up two points shy of his championship. Bobby Joe could not believe that she had found such a great stud for her litters. Now, Bobby Joe and the original owner of Fonzie, they get together. They agree they're going to attend a show in January to let him win those final two points. There, Bobby would show the owner as much as she could. This was exciting for the owner because not only could she, could they not think of anybody better to teach them than Bobby Joe, but to have such a prize-winning animal in their dog, it's just all around exciting. The same month that Fonzie performs so well, the closest to Bobby Joe through her a baby shower. Victoria Joe was celebrated and Bobby was showered with loves and gifts to make the arrival of their first daughter as easy as possible. Two hour, two and a half hours away in Melbourne where Lisa Marie was, she was just delivered a home delivery kit that she had bought offline. This is the very same kit that a lot of midwives were using during that time. Also, Lisa Marie is on the internet and she's doing extensive map questing. Remember map quest way back when? Yeah, she's doing that in order to try and memorize the drive from Melbourne, Kansas to Skidmore. Not only it being the easiest route, the quickest route, but she needed to know it by heart and not have to stop for direction because this was very time sensitive in what she is planning. On November 17th, Lisa Marie sat glued to her computer, and we know it was this date due to the footprints that we had talked about, uh, you leaving anytime you get on the computer now, and it's connected to the internet. Digital forensic footprints. This was a big thing in the Grant Amato case. I went through that timeline, and it was like going through with a fine-tooth comb. It's amazing, down to the actual second 
that we can see keys are being stroked, websites are being accessed, how far you make it through the video, things like that. Well, we got Lisa Marie sitting here glued to her computer screen where she has this online life that is perfect, right? She has the perfect family. She has the perfect husband. Now they're going to have their first child together. Lisa Marie has just created a fairy tale for her life. And it was so much better than the one she was actually living in at that time. Well, to make preparations for the uh, arrival of their child, she's sitting here, she's watching doctors perform C-section. Now, these videos are uploaded to the internet with the intention of teaching either gynecological students, surgery residents, uh, pre-med, whatever. It's all there for educational purposes. But Lisa Marie was able to take that and turn it into something more sinister. She learned how to perform a cesarean on a person. She has zero medical history knowledge, none, has no idea. She's, there's never been a field where she worked in as far as like a CNA or a nurse or anything. She does not have any of that. There's no training whatsoever. But she has managed to equip herself with enough knowledge that she's comfortable now planning the murder of Bobby Joe and the cesarean of her baby in order to pass this child off as her own. Then something fishy happens. On December 15th, a woman named Darlene Fisher writes Bobby Joe after getting her name for an, another well-known breeder in Kansas. Now, this well-known breeder in Kansas has had interaction with Lisa Marie, and in Lisa's story last week, I told you eventually he got to a point where he's like he couldn't deal with the lying that she was just lying over stupid things and he eventually distanced himself away from Lisa Marie. Well, she developed Darlene Fisher and she contacted that breeder because it was a breeder she knew and had this fictional story of how they, you know, I got your name from so-and-so, and I hear you're really good into rat terrier breeding, and da-da-da-da-da. She creates a story for this breeder in Kansas to ultimately give her the contact information to Bobby Joe, which she knows, but we have to create this chain of events so that we have a timeline, and we've created this person online that doesn't exist. We're catfishing before catfishing became a thing, you know. It's just the extensive planning that went into this is what I think sold the jury later in the trial. Because how could a person who's mentally handicapped have this level of planning? And I think it's because you have to break Lisa Marie down in two forms. There's the knowledgeable one. There's the common sense one. And the common sense that Lisa Marie needed to understand the ultimate consequences of her crime is where we lack and where I have some questions about whether or not she, you know, was eligible for the death row. But they don't excuse the very logical side of her that went through this extensive planning and changing her story, morphing it into one that 
when she did take the child, it would play perfectly, right? Like nobody would ever think about Lisa Marie being this conniving kind of person. Well, here we are with Darlene Fisher. Darlene writes Bobby Joe and says, quote, I was recommended to you and have been unable to reach you by either phone or email. Please get in touch with me soon as we are considering the purchase of one of your puppies, end quote. So immediately, Bobby Joe contacts Darlene. They chat for about 20 minutes following that initial message. And they set up a meeting to where Darlene is going to meet Bobby Joe at her home in Skidmore the very next day. Now, I'm going to go and throw a warning in real quick. I'm going to get into the murder of Bobby Joe. It's graphic. Um, I will be very tasteful in how I describe this scene to you. But if you're a person who just can't handle that kind of thing, um, I would go ahead and skip to the conclusion of today's episode. Okay, so here we are, December 16th. We have security cameras in a Walmart in Maryville, Missouri, about an hour, hour and a half drive, about half an hour drive from Skidmore. So Lisa Marie's already drove about two hours as Darlene Fisher, and she's caught on screen. Now, she terrifies a mother while she's inside this Walmart. That She comes across a mom and a baby, and the baby's super fussy. And Darlene offers to hold the baby while the mother does her shopping. Well, immediately, you know, mom's senses start tingling, and she decides, I'm going to let my kids scream until I'm out of the, out of the, you know, immediate surrounding of this person because I don't like the way they're making me feel. So she darts off. Well, you know, had, I don't know, it's sad. Had Lisa Marie taken that baby, maybe Bobby Joe wouldn't have died. But then again, you have that mother who would have lost her child, which, I mean, all in together, there's no outcome that isn't terrifying for society. Once the mother gets out of the line of sight of Darlene. Darlene shops in the baby department. She selects a few items. She pays for her purchase. She goes out into the parking lot where the cameras pick up feed of her getting into her car and turning left from the parking lot in the direction of Skidmore. The last light in Maryville, Darlene remembers she needs to make a right onto the road that would go directly into Skidmore. She's on her way. Well, in Skidmore, in the tiny two-bedroom home on West Elm, Bobby Joe is preparing for a potential candidate to come into her home and for them to get to know one another and possibly select one of the puppies she's looking to adopt. At 2.30, Becky Harper calls the home of Bobby Joe and Zeb. Bobby answers and she's talking to her mother. Becky needs a ride from work and Bobby lets her know, hey, you know, I've got somebody coming over. It's a potential um, customer looking to adopt. I will get there when I can get there, but it shouldn't be too much after three o'clock. Cool. Great. There's a knock on the door and Bobby lets her mother know, you know, they're here. 
I've got to get off the phone. Well, this is very exciting for her because Bobby Joe loved showing off her young puppies. She was proud of her litters that her dogs were giving birth to. And she was hoping to make sure every single one of them went to a great home and even better owners. The knock on the door signaled the end of the phone call with Bobby Joe to her mother. It would also signal the very last conversation a mother-daughter would have. From the window, Bobby could see that there was a dirty red Toyota parked in front of her home. Did Bobby Joe recognize the face on the other side of the door when she opened the door? I know a lot of you are asking that because I talked, you know, just a little bit ago about how the two had met at a dog show briefly. When Bobby Joe answered the door, there was no indication that she recognized Darlene Fisher. So she welcomes Darlene into her home. She escorts her to the second bedroom that had become the breeding room for Bobby Joe and Zeb. And inside there, she was eager to show off the pups to Darlene. There was no issues with anxiety or fear when it came to their interaction because from the get-go, Bobby Joe is able to turn her back to Darlene. Well, when she turns her back in the in the kennel room to Darlene, this allows Darlene to wrap a rope around Bobby Joe's neck and start yanking it tight. Bobby Joe was pulled backwards for just a moment before her urge to fight kicked in and she began to kick backwards almost in like a horse style donkey kick and sometimes those would land on the body of Darlene and sometimes they were kicking nothing but air. Darlene she manages to hold on tight even with the onslaught of kicks coming her way and she manages to maintain control of squeezing that rope around Bobby's neck until she goes limp. Then she lays Bobby down, Bobby Joe down on the floor. She goes to the kitchen. She's going to need a very sharp paring knife. This will allow her to have more control in the depth that she's making her cuts. And the smaller blade is easier to um, manipulate as need be. She's working quickly because she realizes that she is just minutes away from something fatal happening to the infant. And so she gets back into the room and she takes the three-inch paring knife and makes her first incision into the very taut abdomen of Bobby Joe. As the blood starts to trickle from that first cut, Bobby Joe is snapped back and wakes up and she begins to fight with Darlene once again. She goes for the knife. The two, they fight over it. This causes Darlene to suffer injuries on her hands and fingers and Bobby Joe manages to get to her feet. And the reason we say this is important is because later in the investigation, it shows that Bobby Joe was strangled more than one time because she was able to get to her feet after an incision was made, after blood was spilled, because the soles of her feet are covered in blood. 
Well, because they're covered in blood, she's getting no traction. Therefore, she's on the losing end of fighting with Darlene. Bobby Joe is, she knows she's got to fight to save her life in order to fight and save the life of her own daughter. However, she's at a disadvantage and Darlene is able to get the rope around her neck again and she squeezes. She holds this squeeze until Bobby goes limp again. And this time she holds it for longer because obviously the first time it didn't actually kill her, just knocked her unconscious. So Darlene squeezes tight for about five minutes. She knows that once she's satisfied with the length of time that she's held the strangulation, that she's only got minutes to get the child. She continues to cut away at the different layers of the abdomen until she reveals the womb in which the baby she desires more than anything is located. This baby would stop all of the gossip behind her back about her. She's not able to have any more children. This would show them all once and for all that she really was pregnant. This isn't solely about attaining a child. This is solely, this is partially proving people wrong about her. That she's not who everybody thinks she is. Once she gets to the womb, she's far more careful and far more precise in opening up the uterus and the amniotic sac to the newborn baby. She ties off the umbilical cord and cuts it, severing the blood flow from Bobby Joe and successfully delivering Zeb and Bobby's daughter one month early. Lisa tucks the infant into her coat. She grabs the knife and she leaves the small two-bedroom home, climbs into her car, and leaves Skidmore and the tragedy she created behind. Once she's a little ways from Skidmore, Darling pulls over. She suctions at the infant's airway. She wipes away the child, cleaning away the nightmare that this poor infant was born into. Once in Kansas City, just the other side of the Missouri-Kansas border, Darlene is left behind and Lisa is the person to emerge. It's like she wasn't even present for the murder because Darlene did it all for her. Now Lisa has this child that it's gonna, you know, she had saved it from the woman carrying it because Bobby Joe wasn't gonna treat her as well as Lisa could and she's gonna be able to save her marriage. And so she pulls over into a Long John Silver's parking lot and it's located just across the street from a birthing center. She parks her Toyota car, she goes to the payphone and she calls her husband to let him and her children know that she has welcomed a new baby. At 3.18 p.m. on December 6th, Becky Harper begins to walk to her daughter's house. Becky had tried to call Bobby Joe, but there just was no answer. She knew she had had somebody over to her home looking to adopt a, a puppy, so she hoped that maybe the visit, visiting was still going on with a potential customer. But the mother's intuition inside told her something else was going on. 
Becky walked up to the home and the first thing she noticed was that the front door was open. This was not a common thing for Bobby Joe. However, the weather was fairly warmer than normal during that time of year. And so she thought, well, maybe. But when she stepped into the house and she calls out her daughter's name, Bobby, no one answers. At 3.26 p.m., Becky steps foot into the second bedroom and she would see the horrific scene that painted the room surrounding her daughter who lay on the floor just before her. Her first instinct was to reach for her cell phone and call 911. Becky screams into the small portable phone, my baby's dead, my baby's lying in a pool of blood. The dispatcher attempts to try and calm Becky down to a point that they can get a clear understanding of what exactly is going on and what Becky is trying to tell them. They never imagined that what Becky was staring at was as horrific as it is. Sheriff Ben Espy, he was sitting at his desk not 10 feet from the dispatcher listening to the call that come in from Becky, that had came in from Becky and what they were attempting to say. Becky tries again. She says, it's my, my daughter. It appears her stomach is exposed. Exposed was not the word anybody was expecting to hear. Espy hollered for them to go ahead and radio the lieutenant investigator to meet him at the address that Becky Harper had just given dispatch. Becky adds one last line that will forever be imprinted into the brains of anybody who touched this case as far as the investigation goes. She says it looks like her stomach exploded. Eleven minutes after the 911 call came into the Nottoway County Department, Ben Espy arrived in Skidmore. One of the chief investigators was hot on his wheels. What went on inside of that house was the mantra that Espy said over and over as he drove to West Elm Street. As he walked up the walkway to the Stennett house and into the bedroom where Bobby Joe met a terrible fate. Espy found Becky on her knees, hovering over her daughter, administering CPR. Tears flooded her face as she cried. Espy told Becky to fetch him a wet washcloth and that he was going to take over CPR for Becky. When he had walked into the room, he felt Bobby Joe's carotid artery 
and he learned that there was no heartbeat. However, he was going to continue CPR, but Becky wasn't giving up on her daughter just like Bobby didn't give up on hers. Then Becky told him the one thing he didn't want to hear. Bobby Joe was pregnant. Eight months pregnant. When you go into the career of law enforcement, those who've dedicated decades to serve and protect those of their own town, county, state, or country can tell you all about the gruesome crimes they've seen in their years. They can write down step-by-step instructions on how to handle something like this. What they cannot prepare you for is walking into a home where the stench of blood invades your nose. It doesn't prepare you for how much blood that a human body can actually hold. It doesn't prepare you for the crazy and torturous acts that another can do to someone they barely know. They can't prepare you to be looking at what Espy was staring at and hear the words, she's pregnant, and then looking down at the very flat stomach of a dead woman as you are pumping on her chest. There was never a handbook written on how to deal with fetal abduction, a rare crime and an even rarer investigation technique. Even though you know what you are looking at, it doesn't hit you until you hear the words spoken. The baby was cut out. The umbilical cord has been cut. Join me next week as we look at one of the first investigations to unravel surrounding a federal fetal abduction case. One of its first since the Federal Kidnapping Act of 1932. One of the first since the National Induction of the Amber Alert System. One of the first that everyone prayed would be solved sooner rather than later, but never expected to find who was responsible at the other end. One that would put a face to this crime, but even more so a face to the clarification of what constitutes mental ailment that would fall under the Eighth Amendment. A crime law students and police alike will study for years to come. As always, I leave you with one last line. There is no greater warrior than a mother protecting her child. Much love, the true crime librarians.